Thank you for downloading the Two Cities Church podcast, where we are pushing back darkness by spreading the good news of King Jesus. And now, here is this week's message from Pastor Jeff Struker. I am amazed that I made it today. Um, I landed in Atlanta just a few minutes ago and drove down here at record speed, turning corners on two wheels just to be able to get to this service today. I was in Sioux Falls, South Dakota last night, and um, I was doing a men's event. We had been planning this thing for more than a year. And when we started planning it, I started saying, I don't know if I should go to South Dakota in February. That's taking a big risk. And the guys that were organizing the event said, listen, we really want you to come. Would you speak on Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening? And I said, no, I can't make Saturday night. There's no way that I can physically get back to Columbus on Sunday morning. They said, listen, we'll change the schedule. We'll change everything. We'll move you to the morning time. We just want you to be there. And after some prayer, I just decided, yeah, a year ago, I agreed to speak at the ResGen Men's Conference 2024 in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Listen to what God did, church. This is why I'm telling you I almost didn't make it today. There were 1,200 men in the room yesterday in Sioux Falls. This event was being broadcast literally 19 locations all over America. I got up and I had the chance to talk about Jesus and tell everybody what he's done in my life and tell them what Jesus can do in their life. And then I did something that I usually don't do. I asked guys to just be bold and courageous about their faith. And if you need Jesus to get up and to come forward, and I didn't even get done talking before guys started walking down the aisle. And pretty soon there were 50 men on their knees in front of this worship center, broken and asking Jesus to change their life. That's just in one room. I have no idea what happened at those simulcast sites all over America. But when I got done, there was no question. God wanted us to be part of this event. God wanted me to be part of this men's conference. And then I showed up to the airport immediately after the conference was over with. And airplane delay, airplane maintenance, airplanes broken, no flights leaving South Dakota tonight. You're going to be here until tomorrow morning, and maybe we'll be able to get you back to Columbus on time. So I'm here, and you're here. So let's talk about family today. We're in Genesis chapter 25. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and open it up to Genesis 25. Um, If you don't, just have the mobile app open because all of the notes, all of the scriptures are right there in front of you. When Dawn and I first got started in ministry, we were working at a little country church in Hardin County, Kentucky. The only thing that you need to know about that place is it's just a few miles from the birthplace of Abraham Lincoln. Little country church that couldn't afford to pay us anything, so we were basically working for free, and they gave us a place to stay. There was an older couple 
that helped with the student ministry. We were doing student ministry at the time, not a lot of teenagers, but there was this older couple that loved teenagers, gave everything that they've got to the teenagers in this church. And man, I was so blown away by the way that this couple gave, the way that this couple served, by the heart that this couple had for teenagers. And I couldn't figure it out. So I started asking some of the founding families of the church, tell us a little bit more about that couple. And they said, Jeff, if you don't know their story, you got to go talk to them because God has done something amazing, something incredible in their life. And after talking to them, it became really clear. God did something so amazing in our life that we want him to do the same thing in other people's lives. And we want to get them while they're young. We want to reach them before they make all of the mistakes that they spend the next 30 years regretting. You see, this couple really taught me something about family. And I'll tell you what we're going to learn from the Bible today. I'll just put it on the screens for you in a very simple sentence. Here it is. When family is great, nothing is better. But maybe this is your family like it was my family. When family is bad, nothing is worse. And it really feels like there's not a lot of middle ground here. Nothing is better when it's great. Nothing is worse when it's bad than family. And in the uh, family that you grew up in, maybe God blessed you. Maybe he gave you an awesome family, great parents, uh, family, brothers and sisters that you really love. If so, you should go home and thank Jesus for that family. Because not all of us in this room grew up like that. And every statistic says this, the most important influence in your life by a landslide, there's not even a close second, is going to be your family. No one will influence you like family will because your family will set the tone at least at a young age. And if you're not careful, it will stay with you for the rest of your life. They'll set the tone for how you view the world. And you may end up spending the next 50 years of your life trying to fix what your family taught you about how to view the world. The family gives you an idea about how to view you. And some people are still in therapy today because of the family that they grew up in. Family gives you the starting point for how to view God. And when it tells you how to view the world, how to view you, how to view God, family has a massive influence on your life. And I hope you're like me. It's encouraging to know that all of the families of God, those families were not perfect. In fact, what we see in the Bible today is one of the founding families of the faith that have some pretty big problems in their family. Does anybody else in this room say, thank God they have a jacked up family like I did because maybe we can make it through if Jacob and his family, if Isaac and his family can deal with the issues that we're going to see in the Bible today. We're in Genesis 25. And the first thing that I want you to hear from the Bible is when one part of the family hurts, the whole family is supposed to hurt. 
It's supposed to go like this. When your sister's heart is broken, it should break your heart. When mom and dad are hurting spiritually or emotionally, it's supposed to hurt the children's heart because we're one unit, we're one team, and when one part of the team suffers, everybody suffers. Today, Rebecca's heart hurts. And because they're a family, Isaac's heart hurts for Rebecca. So here's how the story goes in the Bible. We're in Genesis chapter 25, and we're going to start with verse 19. These are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took as a wife Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac, here it is, prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And we don't even need to know because the Bible has told us an awful lot about it. This hurts bad. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, Rebecca, because she was childless. And the Lord was receptive to his prayer. And his wife, Rebecca, conceived. Now, when you see the word family in the Bible today, I want you to understand that the Bible really is God's family history. It's God's family record. And the book of Genesis is all of our family records. Did you know that the book of Genesis is hugely concerned with families? In fact, you look this word up in the Bible, and it shows up more in the book of Genesis than all of the rest of the books of the Bible. This book is very, very concerned about family, and it's about our family. Because every human being on earth, your family story started in Genesis chapter 1, when God created your first parents, Adam and Eve. Your family tree, I don't even need to know who you are because every human being on earth, your family tree goes through Noah because except for Noah and his family, none of us would be standing here. And the Bible is now giving us the family story of Isaac. If you were with us last week, the page on Abraham's family has closed. Abraham's son Ishmael, his family page has closed. Even Abraham's second wife Keturah and their children, that family page has closed now we've got one page to read, and this is the page about Isaac. And the Bible really is a family record. Anybody ever seen one of these big mamajamas in your grandparents' house? This right here was in almost every home in America for a very specific reason. This was the family record. In fact, if you, this is my grandmother's Bible, and if you open up, it will start to tell you the record of when your children got married, when your children had children, when their children had children, and it was all kept right here in the family records because there really wasn't a place to go to the government courthouse and see the family records. This was more than just a Bible in most homes. It was also the family history. And what the Bible is giving us today is the family history of Isaac. And you can't miss the connections here, right? Like if you've been reading through Genesis, you got to see that there's a lot of similarities between Abraham and Isaac. Abraham is a foreigner 
living in a foreign land. Isaac is a foreigner living in a foreign land. You want to know about the struggles? You want to know about the difficulties of being a total foreigner living in an entirely new nation? Ask Pete and Alicia DeVette about what this feels like to move from South Africa to the United States with just the clothes on your back. Abraham gets married to a wife that is barren. Isaac gets married and his wife is barren. And the Bible gives us more than a chapter's worth of information about how bad this hurt for Sarah, Abraham's wife. She longed, she desperately wanted to have a baby. In fact, she controlled the circumstances so that she would have a baby even before God gave her the child that he had been promising. And that's where Ishmael comes into the equation. Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, there's a lot of similarities today. And Abraham prayed for his wife, Rebekah, when she was barren. Isaac is praying for, Abraham prayed for Sarah. Isaac is praying for Rebekah because it hurts when one part of your family hurts. Now, forgive me, indulge me for just a second. I want to define the word family for us. I realize you started using this word in your vocabulary when you were a toddler But I think I need to remind us about this word family because the word family and actually families themselves are under a massive assault in our society. You see, even the government itself, if you're not careful, is trying to hijack this word and define for you what a family is. Society, the movies that you watch, all of those things are trying to give you a description, a definition, an image about what family is. But I need to remind you, this word family is a Bible word. The word marriage that creates a new family, that is a Bible word. And because it's a Bible word, that means that only the God of the Bible has the authority to define what a family is. Would you agree? Listen to me, church. What I'm saying is the government should be able to tell you there are some legal proceedings for an adoption. And sure, they're going to have to do some court proceedings for a marriage, for a divorce, for a death certificate. That's the government's role in the legal side of the relationship. But the government has no business defining what a marriage is, defining what a family is, which means the Supreme Court of the United States has no business saying who can and cannot get married. Only God can make those statements. And he has chapters in the Bible defining what a marriage is and what a marriage isn't. A family is a unit. It's actually a supernatural unit that God brings together. And because God joined families together, when one part of the family hurts, the whole family is supposed to hurt. If you're not already involved in a little small family group of God's children, then I really want to challenge you to get involved. Because in a life group, in a small group, people get a chance to open up their hearts and they open up their lives to one another. And when a sister in your small group is hurting, everybody in your group should be hurting right along with her. When a brother in your group, your church family group is hurting, everybody in that group is supposed to hurt right alongside them because we really are all part of God's family. Everybody in this room that's been bought by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ has been adopted into God's family, which makes us 
Brothers and sisters and children of the living God, that means when one sister is hurting, all of us hurt. When one brother is hurting, all of us are supposed to hurt. And the church is the place that people run to when your biological family is a mess like Isaac's family is a mess today. And I just want to tell you, the problem is that when your home is a mess, there's really no place to go. Like, where is the refuge when your home isn't safe anymore? Where can you turn? Where do you lay your head down at night when your home isn't safe? Or in some of our cases, when people in your family are just playing out crazy, right? And your home is not only not safe, but it's also not sane. Because that's a little bit of what we're seeing today. There's lots of similarities. Abraham prayed for Sarah when she couldn't have a baby. God answered that prayer and gave Sarah a baby. Isaac prays for his wife, Rebecca. She can't conceive. God answers that prayer, and God doubles down for Isaac and gives Rebecca two babies. But that's where the similarities stop today. Rebecca is going to have twins and these two boys cannot be any further apart. Like literally everything about these boys is pretty much different from one another. Let's see what happens when God chooses to answer this prayer. The best we know, she's been praying for 20 years before God answers this prayer and gives Rebecca two children. Genesis 25, starting in 22. But the children inside her struggled. Say the word struggled out loud. Very important word. Basically, fight club is going on inside of Rebecca's womb while she's still pregnant. The children inside her struggled with each other. And she said, why is this happening to me? This was so bad for Rebecca that she knew this isn't medical. There's something else going on, and I need some help. I need some advice. And so she goes first to where she should go. Instead of going to the doctors first, she immediately goes to the Lord. Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples will come from you and be separated. Now, when it says separated, the Bible means in almost every conceivable way, these two twins are not alike. They will be separated, and one people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. I'm going to read that sentence on the screens again because it's extremely important. It's highly unlikely. It's almost scandalous what God is saying to Isaac and Rebecca right now. One of your children is going to be weaker than the other. And one of them is going to get the birthright. One of them is going to be chosen by me. One of them is going to be blessed by me. And immediately mom and dad think, of course, that's going to be the oldest, the strongest, the handsome one. And God says, no, that's not how it's going to go with your boys. The younger is going to be the ruler over the older. And this one would have sent shockwaves through the family. When it says two nations, the Bible is being very literal here. God is telling Rebecca and Isaac before it even happens what's going to be, what this is going to be like in 100, 200, 300 years. They're going to have two boys. The oldest boy, his name is Esau. 
They will change that name to the name Edom, and his nation will become the Edomites, and the Edomites will live on the border of Israel. The youngest boy, his name is Jacob, and Jacob's name will be changed to Israel, and Israel and Edom are going to live right next to each other, and just like they were doing in mama's womb, these two nations are going to hate each other, and they're going to be at each other's throats. Listen, y'all. For hundreds of years, there's nothing but struggle and strife in front of these two boys because they can't be any more different from one another. They're different from one another, we'll see in just a second, in the way that they look. Isaac and Ishmael, or Isaac and Esau, don't look anything like them. When they're at Walmart, nobody thinks those two boys are twins. Isaac and Ishmael are very different from one another in personality. And what the Bible is actually warning us today is they're also very different from one another in faith. And it's going to become real clear in just a few verses in the Bible how radically different these two boys are when it comes to their relationship with God. Picture this for just a second. Same mama and daddy, same home, literally same womb. They're twins, but when they come out, they are very radically different from one another. And God already knows that ahead of time. There's some very natural Cain and Abel relation, or language going on here. Anybody remember how that brother relationship worked out? Well, these two are at each other's throats, not when they're out in the fields talking about the crops and the, the animals. They're at each other's throats while they're still in mama's womb. And the Bible uses some language here. Don't get offended by it. It's Bible language here that God is going to choose one of the boys over the other. In fact, when you hear this language, it's referred to several times in the New Testament, Jacob and Esau, their relationship with each other and their relationship with God. And in the New Testament, the Bible uses the word election. God sovereignly elects Jacob, but not Esau. Now, let me make sure I explain that word because people get their feelings hurt theologically over this phrase. What the Bible is saying is two boys are going to be born and God is going to elect or choose one of those two boys to bring his son Jesus into the world through. And instead of choosing the natural one, the stronger of the two, the better hunter, the better provider, the one that should be much more successful, the older of the two, God decided to choose the younger one, the weaker one. And maybe it's because when everybody sees how God is taking care of Jacob, the weaker of the two, and how Esau is working and striving but not getting ahead in the world like his brother, people stand up and say, this isn't a mistake. It's not a coincidence. Obviously, God is blessing this boy, Jacob. But if you want to know why God chose the younger instead of the older, Hebrews chapter 12 tells you explicitly. You see, God knew something about these two boys while they were still in the womb. Before they were even born, God knew what kind of men these two would become. 
And Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Jacob will become a man who, who honors God, a man who follows God. But Esau, this is Bible language here, is irreverent, which means Esau doesn't care about his faith, doesn't care about God, could give a flying rip about what mama and daddy believe and about what my brother believes. And it is because God can look deep inside the recesses of the human soul even while you're still inside your mother's womb and see what's going on in there. And he knows I can trust Jacob with the future of humanity, with the birth of my son, Jesus, but not Esau, because I know what's inside Esau's soul. And so I choose Jacob the younger above Esau the older, because when the home is at odds with each other, when the home isn't safe, when the home isn't sane, really, where do you have to turn? Where do you have to run? This is why some men, some women run to work and they become workaholics. This is why some people turn to drugs or to alcohol and they become alcoholics because I got no other refuge, no other place to run to because my home is such a mess. You know, we do a marriage conference every year. We're doing one this coming weekend. And we do a marriage conference for a very specific reason. Because it's really hard to pull off a godly marriage in this wicked world that we live in. And some of you in this room ought to be saying, that's exactly right. But when you add the military, when you add deployments, when you add all of the stresses of society that we have around us that is stacking the deck against your marriage, we believe that everyone needs a little tune-up. Everyone needs a little shot in the arm. Every good marriage can become great. And every bad marriage can get a little bit better if, and here's the key, Two people are willing to work at it. So we put time and money into this marriage conference. In fact, spoiler alert, our church is going to lose money this weekend on this marriage conference. We're going to give every penny that comes in and more away because we believe when the home is hurting, where else do you have to run? And anywhere you run next is not healthy unless you run to the same one that Rebecca ran to. Things are not right inside of me. Isaac, something is wrong with these two babies. I got to figure out what's going on. And there's no medical doctor that can help me. Isaac, I need you to get on your knees. We need to pray to the Lord and we need to ask him what's wrong here. Because if God doesn't intervene, there is something very wrong going on inside of me. And that's when these two boys start to fight. And they don't stop fighting until the last time we see them in the Bible. And the problem is there is no such thing as a fair family fight. Now, please don't misunderstand. When I use the word fight, I'm not talking about physical abuse. There is never, ever an excuse for a husband who physically abuses his wife or a wife who abuses her husband. But come on, y'all. We don't often God forbid this is your marriage. Maybe somebody throws fists in your marriage. But for most of us, it hurts a lot worse, but there's no bruises on the skin. You see, we use words. We use accusations. We use criticism. We, we, we use the kind of uh, fight that 
is going to leave scars deep in the inside that are going to stay with us long after those bruises heal. And Isaac are, and Jacob and Esau are at each other's throat right now. And now we get a chance to see why mama and daddy named him Esau and why they chose to name him Jacob. When their time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat. This is just weird to me. Every time I read this verse, it makes me scratch my head. He's red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and so they named him Esau. Of course they did. Uh, of course they did, because the word Esau is basically two root Hebrew words. The Hebrew word for red and the Hebrew word for hairy, if you take the root words and smash them together, you have the name Esau. I guess this boy was so hairy. You know, the typical Middle Eastern man. He had this fur coat on the front, fur coat on the back. You can't even see his skin because he's got so much hair. And if you could see his skin, he's got red blotches all over it. I think there's a uh, dermatological... Man, I just pulled that word out of the air. I don't even know if that's real. I think there's a word for what Esau was experiencing. But from the moment that he came out of the womb, this baby was noticeably different from his brother. Esau, red hairy, but look at Jacob. His brother, when he came out, his brother was still fighting with them, even fighting during the delivery process. Ladies, if you've ever had painful childbirth, imagine trying to give birth to two boys who are fighting with each other while you're having birth. They came out E, or his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand. The word Jacob literally means Jehovah saves. The name in Hebrew is actually Jacob, Jehovah saves. But it is very similar sounding to the name of the word in Hebrew for heel. This boy is grabbing his brother and won't let go of his brother and fighting with his brother even to the point that they are coming out of the womb. Even in the birth canal, they're still wrestling with each other, still fighting with each other. So Jacob is a heel, basically, and Esau is a red, hairy man. And so they named him Jacob, Jehovah saves and Isaac was 60 years old. He was 40 when he married Rebecca. He was 60 years old when he had these twin boys. If anybody did a little quick mental math, if you were with us last week, you already know that that means Abraham is still alive when these twin boys are born. And chances are Abraham gets a chance to see Isaac's sons. Abraham gets a chance to see his grandsons before he dies. God creates two very different sons while they're still in the womb. Esau has a fur coat. Jacob comes out grasping at the heel of his brother. And the rest of their story is going to be Jacob grasping at his older brother for something. Look up here, church, that God has already given him. And Esau is going to spurn and reject and ignore. He is irreverent and doesn't really care about what God is offering to him. Man, you couldn't name these two sons any better. Esau becomes Edom. Jacob becomes Israel. Edom and Israel are going to be like this for the next couple hundred years. And it started while they were still in mama's womb. And I want to go back now. To this couple that I told you about. 
I'll never forget the day uh, Dawn and I had a chance to go to their house, and I said, listen, the people in the church keep talking about you too. They keep talking about your relationship. They keep talking about your family. What on earth is the deal with you guys? Why are you so different from everybody else? Why do you give so much of yourself to these students and their future? And they basically said, Jeff, let me tell you about the moment that we decided to divorce one another. Now, this couple is in their late 60s, early 70s at this point. This was years ago. And they said, when we were married, we were oil and water, and we could not figure things out. We stayed together because we had kids, but we just kept doing this the whole time we were married. As our children started to get older, as they were getting ready to leave home, we both started to look at each other. We started to look at ourselves and say, I don't even know that man. I don't even like that woman anymore. Why did I even marry them in the first place? And they both decided, that's it. It's time for us to just go our separate ways. We've stayed together just for the children. And then for whatever reason, somehow, some way, call it a coincidence, They both decided, let's give it one more shot. Let's go sit down with somebody. Let's go do some marriage counseling with somebody. We'll give it one more chance. And if this doesn't work, then we both decide it's time to go our separate ways. This is years, maybe decades before Dawn and I had a chance to meet this couple. They sat down in a counselor's office. They started laying the whole ugly family, the whole horrible home life, all of it out in front of the counselor. And he looked them in the eyes and he said, forget it. It's over. Just go get a divorce because there is nothing left of this marriage. And they both walked out of the office few minutes in one counseling session, and they both walked out of the office to their car. They're standing at the opposite doors of their car, getting ready to get in the car, and they said, is this really how bad it's become? They looked across the hood of the car at one another, and they said, do we really believe that even God in heaven is not big enough, not strong enough to fix this home? And both of them realized at that moment, they broke down and they started realizing at that moment, you know what's wrong with my marriage? You know what's wrong with my home? Me. It's not her fault. It's my fault. And she started saying, it's not him. It's me. And God forgive me because of the war that's inside of me. And that war that's inside of me is starting to spill out into my marriage. It's spilling out into my home. It's spilling out into my children. I don't think I ever got a chance to see this couple around the child, their own children, but I watched them around teenagers and holy smokes, this couple was amazing. And they said it all came down to that parking lot where we looked across the hood of the car of one another and said, do we really believe that even God in heaven can't fix this marriage? And that's the moment that God intervened and started showing them, it's not her, it's you. It's not him, it's you. And if you want things to turn around in your home, you got some work to do with you. And then God showed him something next. If you're willing to do this work, I'm willing to do some work inside of you. This week, we were speaking to some warriors out on Fort Moore, and one of the guys turned in this prayer request. I won't tell you his name, but it is a very bold, very honest prayer request. And he said, would you pray to the Lord? Because there's something really broken inside of me. And I am so hurt by my family 
that I can't forgive them. But this is what made this stand out to me. He said, I am so broken and so bitter about what my family did to me. Look up here. That I can't love myself because of the kind of man that I've become, because of the way that I view my family. Would you pray for me that God would heal me, not my family? Because I am broken on the inside, because I have allowed this to break me. Instead of running to Jesus, I've tried to fix it myself. Instead of running to Jesus, I've tried to control it. And when I couldn't control it, I got angry. And then I turned into uh, unforgiveness, which turned into bitterness. And what this guy really needs is supernatural help for God to fix his family. And he was honest enough. Very, very few times do I get a chance to see somebody this wise to say, God needs to fix me. Because if he doesn't fix me, nothing in my family is going to change. Maybe somebody's out there today and you're saying, man, I come from a really messed up home. And it's impacted the way that I view the world. It's impacted the way that I view myself. When I look in the mirror, I don't like what I'm looking at. It's impacted the way that I view God because I looked at and learned about God by watching my mama and daddy and they are a mess. And maybe what you need today is for God to take away this problem, messed up family, and invite you into the perfect family. Invite you to become his son, his daughter, adopted into his family at great price through the blood of his son, Jesus. In just a second, I'm going to pray that somebody steps across the line of faith and trusts Jesus Christ as your savior and becomes a son or daughter of God for the first time. But for, all of, but for others of us in this room, maybe you come from a messed up home. Maybe you're living in a messed up home right now. Maybe you've got some bad relationships at work, bad relationships at home, and you need God's help. You need God's people to help you work through the hurt because you'll never become the person free from all of that pain, all of that guilt, all of that bitterness unless God sets you free. And so if that's you, I'm going to pray for you in just a second. But God's children have been left here on this earth to make an impact. And maybe what he wants from some of us in this room is that you would step into somebody's family mess. And you would say, listen, I'll walk with you through it. I'll help you through it if you let me. I will be there for you, especially to somebody whose family is such a mess that it's caused them to walk away from God and to walk away from God's people. Would you bow your heads? And would you let me pray for us in just a second? We hope you enjoyed this message. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and to stay in touch by joining our email list through the link in the show notes. Have a great week.